Okay, now I got one for you. I'm hoping that you remember this, and I want you to participate with me when I point at you, okay? You think you can handle that? Please? Uh, Okay, here we go. Hold the pickles, hold the lettuce, special orders don't upset us. All we ask is that you let us. Yes! You remember! Burger King, right? Hold the pickles, hold the lettuce. It doesn't get much better than that. We all love this. It's not that we love the Whopper with cheese. It's that for 40 plus years, this marketing campaign, I will look back in the... uh, I will look back at YouTube this week. The ads go back to 1974. Hold the pickles, hold the lettuce. And I found a version as recent as just a few years ago. We love this concept of of having it our way. I love to have it my way. And I know you love to have it your way. We all love to have it our way. We're taught from very young children to go to grab what's ours to grab the things that we want, to meet our needs, and to do it in the way we want it in order that we get it our way. We love to get it our way. We're individuals, and we can do this thing on our own, and everything is for me and my way. But this morning, we have to ask, is that the way that God wants it? So take your Bibles and open up to Joshua chapter 22. Joshua chapter 22, it's found on page 187 in the Bible that the church provides. I'd love for you to follow along. We're going to check out a a great story here in Joshua 22 this morning. We're near the end of the book of Joshua. There's only a few chapters remaining, and as we come to the end, Joshua is going to be talking to us. He's going to be speaking to us through these three chapters at the end of Joshua Remember last week we were at the end of Joshua chapter 21 and we saw how the author of the book of Joshua gave a testimony to all that God had done for the people of Israel. He told us that God gave them land like he promised to them. God gave the people of rest like he promised to them. God gave them victory over their enemies just as he had promised them. And then that last verse in chapter 21 says, Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed, and he is faithful. Every one of those promises was fulfilled. Every one of God's promises was fulfilled. Every one of the promises God made to Israel was fulfilled because he is faithful. He kept all of his promises to Israel, and because he kept all of his promises to Israel, he keeps all of his promises to you, and he keeps all of his promises to me. And now here in these last three chapters of the book of Joshua, Joshua gathers the people of Israel to speak to them, to encourage them in their response to God's faithfulness. So what Joshua does is as he gathers them together, he reminds them of God's faithfulness to them and says, in turn, you need to be faithful to God. Joshua in these last chapters is focused upon the people's response of faithfulness to God. God was unwavering in his faithfulness to the people. Now the people, their rational response to God's unwavering faithfulness is that they respond in faithfulness to God. But here we come to Joshua chapter 22, 
and we see that this God is faithful, but He is faithful in how He unites His people. That is our response to God's faithfulness. God is faithful to us. He keeps His promises. In Joshua 22, we learn that in order to be faithful to God, we have to be united as His people. So in Joshua 22, the unity of God's people is the focus. But here in Joshua 22, that unity is threatened and civil war is imminent. The first, verse, first nine verses of Joshua chapter 22, they start off on a high note. They start with Joshua commending the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And he has nothing but good things to say about them. Look at verse 1. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you have obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now, to this very day, you have not deserted your fellow Israelites, but have carried out the mission the Lord your God gave you. Now that the Lord your God has given them rest as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. These two and a half tribes, they're commended. They're commended by Joshua for keeping their promise. For seven years, these two and a half tribes fought alongside the other nine and a half tribes of Israel, just as they, just as they had promised. Remember, we studied this a while, but it was months ago. We were back in Joshua chapter 1, and you'll recall that these two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh, went to Moses before the people of Israel entered the promised land. And they asked Moses, they said, Moses, can we keep this land on the east side of the Jordan River? Can we live on this land on the east side of the Jordan River? And Moses says, yeah, you can do that, but in order to do that, you have to promise to fight alongside the rest of us as we conquer the promised land. And the two and a half tribes actually keep that promise. And Joseph commends them. He says to them, you kept your word to Moses you kept your word to me. You kept your word to your brothers in arms. And perhaps most importantly, you kept your word to the Lord God. Joshua commends them for what they'd done. And then Joshua sends them off with some parting words in verse 5. These words foreshadow the encouragement that he's going to give to the rest of Israel in chapter 23 and 24. But first he encourages the two and a half tribes in verse 5. Look at what he says, but be very careful to keep the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you, to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, to hold fast to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Joshua sends them on their way with these words of encouragement to be loyal and to be faithful to God. But there's a root, there's a root meaning in these commands. There's, there's a more focused thing that happens. Look at what he commands them to do. To love the Lord, to hold fast to him, to cling. That means to cling to God, to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. You see, Israelite devotion was never a matter of just keeping God's laws and just keeping God's commandments. No more than following Jesus just means we follow his laws or his commandments. It's a personal thing. It's not external, it's internal. It demonstrates our love for God. You see, keeping the commands of God, keeping the laws of God, following Jesus isn't a matter of just keeping rules. It's a matter of relationship. It's a matter of demonstrating 
our love. You see, your obedience demonstrates your love for God. Then in verse 9, we read that the two and a half tribes take off for home. And on their way home, the warriors of the two and a half tribes, they come to the Jordan River, which forms the boundary between the nine and a half tribes on the east side, on the west side of the river, and the two and a half tribes of the east side of the river. Verse 10 describes what happens next. When they came to Gilioth near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. At this point, warning lights should be flashing in your head. Warning lights should be flashing. These two and a half tribes, they build an imposing altar on the west side of the Jordan River. Before they get home, they end up building an altar. And lights should be flashing in your head because seemingly this is against the law and the commands of the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, now remember, all the people of Israel know what God says. They know His law. They know that they're to keep His law. They know that they're to obey. And in Deuteronomy chapter 12, Moses tells the people of Israel, when you go into the promised land, when you go into that land, destroy all of the altars of the Canaanites. Do not practice. Do not follow their pagan religion. And set up an altar one altar in the place that I command you. God says you are going to have one place to worship, you are going to have one place to offer sacrifice, and that place is going to be in the place that I tell you. Well, verse 11 through 14 tell us that this word gets out very quickly. The word of the imposing altar gets out quickly. And we see a big problem brewing between the nine and a half tribes of the west and the two and a half tribes from the east. Verse 11, and when the Israelites heard that they had built the altar on the border of Canaan at Gilioth, near the Jordan, on the Israelite side, look at what verse 12 says, the whole assembly of Israel gathered at Shiloh to go to war against them. All the people of Israel come to Shiloh, they gather at Shiloh, and they're upset. They are ready to go to war against this other two and a half tribes. This is a big deal. Israel, the nine and a half tribes are thinking that this is war. There is a new altar being set up in direct violation of God's law. This altar, they believe, is going to be set up for worship purposes, for the purposes of sacrifice. And they know that God does not ordain this. So the nine and a half tribes are upset that the two and a half tribes built this imposing altar on the side of the Jordan River. God had ordained that the people of Israel would worship and offer sacrifices at the tabernacle in Shiloh. That was the one place of worship. And now here, in short, the conclusion of the nine and a half tribes is that they jump to a tr conclusion. They jump to the conclusion that this one act breaks faithfulness with God and the unity of the people of Israel. Phineas, Phineas and a group of men, Phineas, who's the son of Eleazar the priest, and a group of men, a delegation, go out to meet the two and a half tribes to challenge them in their actions, to call them to account. They go out to meet with them. Look at the seriousness of the charges and the appeal that they make to them. Verse 15. When they went to Gilead, to Reuben Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, the whole assembly of the Lord says... The whole assembly says, how could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? 
How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? Up to this very day, we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. And are you now turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he'll be angry with the whole community of Israel. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God. When Achan, son of Zerah, was unfaithful in regard to the devoted things, did not wrath come upon the whole community of Israel? He was not the only one who died for his sins. Phineas is upset. The people of Israel are upset. And Phineas uses three strong words in challenging the hearts of these two and a half tribes. First, he accuses them of breaking faith. This is the idea of committing a trespass or a transgression. It has the concept of treachery involved in the decision. Joshua commended them for their faithfulness at the beginning of this chapter, and now it appears as if they are turning away from the Lord. That's exactly what he accuses him of. Secondly, turning away or backsliding. It seems like they're dra- gradually drifting away from the Lord. The strongest word, which he uses three times in these paragraphs, is rebel. He accuses them of rebelling. This is accusing them of an apostasy, deliberately resisting God's will, deliberately choosing disobedience over obedience. The three terms, breaking faith, turning away, rebellion. In some, no unity with God and no unity with the rest of Israel. There's no unity among the people of Israel. And this is a problem because God values unity. And they're concerned that their disobedience, their lack of unity will cause their destruction. But just as you think things are out of control, just when you think war is right around the corner, look at the response of the two and a half tribes. It's heartwarming. It's encouraging their response. Verse 22, the mighty one God, the Lord, the mighty one God, the Lord, he knows and let Israel know if this has been in rebellion or disobedience to the Lord, do not spare us this day. If we have built our own altar to turn away from the Lord and to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings or to sacrifice fellowship offerings on it, may the Lord himself call us to account. No, we did it for fear that someday your descendants might say to ours, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? The Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you Reubenites and Gadites. You have no share in the Lord, so your descendants might cause ours to stop fearing the Lord. You see, they didn't build the altar out of rebellion or disobedience. They did not build the altar for burnt sacrifices or offerings. They built the offer, altar for unity's sake. They even say, if we built it out of disobedience, if we built it out of rebellion... May the Lord strike us down. May the Lord call us to account. No, we built this offer, altar so that you will remember and we will remember as a people that we are one before the Lord, that we are united. We don't want you to forever forget. We don't want our people to ever forget that we are one before the Lord. Rather than rebellion, it was intended as a mark 
or a reminder of the unity between the people. Well, after their detailed explanation, there is an immediate and palpable response and relief. Phineas and his delegation are clearly pleased. Look what he says in verse 31. Phineas declares that the Lord is with them. God is now present. There's no sin. There's no war. There's no disunity. And as a result, God is with them. God is present. God is pleased with what has happened because they have demonstrated in coming together, they have demonstrated their unity. And as a result, the altar is allowed to stand and it's given a formal name. It's given the name witness. Look at verse 34. The the name of the altar, a witness between us that the Lord is God. This altar became a symbolic reminder of the unity of the people of God. The nine and a half tribes on the west and the two and a half tribes on the east were one people before God. I love this story. This story is like a great movie. It could be made into a great movie. You have these two sides, these two sides who are trying to be faithful to God. They've recognized God's faithfulness to them. They fought alongside of each other. And now they're, they're able to go to their respective areas, to their lands. And they're passionate. They're both passionate about being faithful to God. The nine and a half tribes on the west side of the Jordan River, they're passionate about being faithful to God. And they recognize that in order to be faithful to God, you need to be obedient. And you can't have unity without obedience. And so the nine and a half tribes focus on the need for obedience to demonstrate faithfulness to God. But the two and a half tribes... They want to be faithful to God as well. The two and a half tribes recognize that in order to be faithful to God, you must be unified. That you cannot be faithful to God if you are not unified. And the thing is, both of them are correct in their passions. Both of them are correct in their beliefs. In order for us to be unified, we must be obedient. In order to be faithful, we must be unified. Both are true. And together they resolve to be unified, adhering to obedience and adhering to unification. They come together and the the misunderstanding is resolved. And they proclaim their unity before the Lord God. And just like any movie... There's a great message in this for us because just like they were passionate about their truths, we need to be passionate about the same truths. And it's not either or, it is both and. You see, in order for there to be unity, there needs to be obedience. There can be no unity without obedience. And we adhere to the truth of the Word of God together. And we are unified together in obedience but we also need to recognize that in order to be faithful to God, we must be unified. Both of these are truths. Both of these are true in our life. There can be no unity without obedience and there can be no faithfulness without unity. God values unity. So our response to God's faithfulness to us 
is that we are to be faithful to him. And here in Joshua 22, we see this requirement of unity for the people of God. All throughout the book of Joshua, from the very beginning of the book of Joshua, there has been an emphasis on obedience. Obey the Lord your God and it will go well for you. That's true here in Joshua 22. But the main point of Joshua 22 is that faithfulness to God requires unity, requires his people to be one. Now, as I was studying this past week, there are three principles or insights that I believe apply to us here at Calvary Church that come out of this story out of Joshua 22. So I'm going to share each insight with you, and then I'm going to share its application to Calvary Church. Now, let me say preemptively that it is a lot easier to preach a sermon, it is relatively easier to preach a sermon on God's faithfulness to us, that he keeps all the promises that he has made to us. And no matter what fear we face in life, there is at least one promise that God has made to cover your fear so that he holds you in his righteous right hand. Relatively speaking, that is an easy sermon to preach. When we come to Joshua 22, and the requirement is to respond to God's faithfulness with our faithfulness, it becomes a little more difficult. Because these are the implications or the principles that come out of Joshua 22. The first one is this. First principle. In God's economy, unity is a higher priority than efficiency. In God's economy, unity is a higher priority than efficiency. Yes, I said that. And I know some of you are reeling right now. Oh, no, we need to be efficient. We need to make sure we tackle the job that God has given us, and we need to get that job done, and we need to get it done well, and we need to get it done quickly. Now, notice, I did not say that efficiency is not important. Efficiency is important. It's just that it's not as important as unity. Unity in God's economy is more important than efficiency. Think of it this way. The people of Israel, when God designs the worship plan for Israel, he's very clear in his instructions. He says, I am going to give you one place to worship and one place to offer sacrifice. That is going to be at the tabernacle in Shiloh. That is the one place. You're not to worship like the pagan Canaanites do. You see, if God was more concerned... If God was more concerned with efficiency than he was with unity, he would have spread places of worship and sacrifice throughout the whole land. Each tribe could have had their own place of worship and place of sacrifice. It would have been a lot easier to get to because God calls them at various times throughout the year to travel to Shiloh to offer worship and to offer sacrifice. If God was about efficiency, hey, Reuben, you can do your thing where you want to do your thing. Judah, you can do your thing where you want to do your thing. No, God values unity over efficiency. And he calls all of them to one place to worship and offer sacrifices. We try to follow that principle here at Calvary Church. We recognize that unity has a higher value in God's economy than efficiency does. For example, the elders here at Calvary Church, in order in following God, in order in being faithful to God, there are many times when decisions come up when issues come before the elders, that, that there's not complete unity. 
When that happens, the elders typically table the issue and pray and discuss it the next month or maybe the next month or the next month. Because the elders aren't primarily focused on efficiency, they're primarily focused on unity. If you wanted to be efficient, elders would move forward with a majority vote of the group. In 12 years of being involved in elders' meetings, I cannot recall one time that a majority vote caused an issue to be approved or move forward. The issue's tabled. They pray. And they seek unity because it has a higher value than efficiency. In thinking about it, I only remember in 12 years one or two times where an issue moved forward when there was just one or two or three negative votes against it. Even when there's one, two, or three people who aren't for it, the elders typically say, you know what, we don't have complete unity here. Let's slow down and work towards unity because God values unity over efficiency. Secondly, God values unity over our own personal opinions, wants, and desires. Ouch. God values unity over our own opinions, wants, and desires. Now, it's not wrong to have our own opinions. It's not wrong to express those opinions. But God values unity over your opinion. He desires that we be one. When Phineas comes to the assembly of Israel, he has an opinion about what happens, and it seems to present that Phineas gets the people of Israel riled up against the other two and a half tribes. And it's not until they come together in unity to discuss what's happening that the misunderstanding is resolved. In God's economy, unity has a higher priority than our own personal opinions, wants, and desires. Here at Calvary Church, I think there's one issue that threatens our unity, maybe above all other issues, and that's the issue of, of worship. That's the issue of how we worship, the songs that we sing. In the past couple of weeks, I've heard a number of comments about the worship. Some of them have been complaints. And some of those complaints, some of those comments have been, well, I, I don't like that song, or I don't like the way that that song is played. I'd rather have you do this song or that song. I'd rather have the worship style be more traditional, or I'd rather have the worship style be more contemporary. I just don't like it. You see, this is the Burger King thing, right? Have it your way. I want it my way. And I get that. And it's not that the opinion is wrong. It's not that your, your opinion is fine. But it's when you get upset, it's when you get angry, it's when you get divisive that that becomes a problem. Why is it a problem? Because God values unity over your own personal opinions, wants, and desires. You see, here at Calvary Church, there, it was funny, last week I heard about somebody who wanted to make the 810 service a more traditional service, primarily for older people in the congregation. But here's the problem. We... We create a schism. We create a, we create a split. You see, when we meet together, we get to meet together in all of our diversity to worship God together. There's not going to be a separate service, a separate style of service because God gives us the opportunity in all of our diversity to come together and worship together. 
So the design of the service is very intentional. There are going to be some songs that resonate with you. We want everyone in the sanctuary to resonate with some song that's sung. But we also want everyone in the congregation to sacrifice, to demonstrate their love for their neighbor so that their neighbor can resonate with some other song. You see, God values our unity more than he values our personal opinions, wants, and desires. God values unity. He values unity more than efficiency. He values unity more than our opinions. And thirdly and finally, he values unity more than our comfort. He values unity more than our comfort. Think about the Israelites. Think specifically about the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. They go with their brothers and they fight for seven years with the brothers to conquer the promised land of Canaan. They leave their families for seven years to unify Israel. It is not the comfortable choice. The comfortable choice would have been to stay on the east side of the Jordan River. But they keep their promise. And to create unity amongst the people, they fight for seven years. And then on their way home, they don't just immediately cross the Jordan River and get home to their families. They stop on the west side of the Jordan River and they build an imposing altar to demonstrate and to make people remember of the unity that God plans for his people. If that's me, I get to the Jordan River, man, I'm across, I'm getting home to my family. But they choose to forego comfort for unity because God values unity more than he values our comfort. Our comfort's going to be challenged. Our comfort at Calvary Church is going to be challenged. You, me, we are comfortable. We are comfortable sitting in our seats. You all, look at the, you all know where you sit, don't you? You all come to pretty much the exact same seat. You think Jim and I don't know if you're here or not? We know you're here. We know exactly where you sit. It's comfortable. You come to your same seat. You know how to, you park in the same parking lot, in the same space in the parking lot. It's comfortable. And now we're moving. April 10th, because of Grace Beyond, we are on our way to Calvin College, and you are not going to know where to sit. <laughs> now, there are signs all over. But which seat? Am I going to be on the upper level? Am I going to be on the lower level? Am I going to be front? Am I going to be back? That's not comfortable. You're going to have to figure out where to park. That's not comfortable either. We got a map for that too. We even got an app for that. We got a map and an app. You can take your pick. But it's not comfortable. We need to figure out new ways to serve. That's not comfortable. We need people to serve. We need people to sign up still this morning. We need more people in children's ministry. We need more people to serve. That's not comfortable. But God values unity more than he values our comfort, and he wants us to do this together. I've heard, I heard, uh, I heard some people say, here's my plan. I'm going to, yeah, they're going to go April 10th, but I'm going to stay home and I'm going to watch it on the internet. And then when they get back to the church, I'm going to come and then I'll come back to the church. God values unity more than he values your comfort. I've heard somebody say, you know, I'm going to serve, 
I'm going to sign up to serve, but I got to figure out my summer vacation first. It's great. Take a summer vacation. Take two. But God values unity more than he values your comfort. You see, God is a God who wants us to be united as a people. He has been faithful to you. He kept every promise to Israel. He gave them land. He gave them rest. He gave them victory over their enemies. And he has kept every promise to you. And he holds you in his righteous right hand. Our response is we are to be unwaveringly faithful to the God who is faithful to us. And Joshua chapter 22 says that means that as God's people, you need to be united. You need to be one. Grace Beyond gives us, people are watching us. Grace Beyond gives us this opportunity to demonstrate unity, to show the world that we are together in this. It gives us the opportunity to do it together. No one person can go it alone. No one person can go life alone. That's why God brings us together, why he unifies us under himself. People are watching. And just like Jesus says in John chapter 17, he prays, God, make them one like you and I are one. Make them one so that they will know that I am who I say I am. Unity demonstrates our love for each other so that people can actually see Jesus in us. It's not unity for unity's sake. It's unity so that we can together demonstrate the love that we have for each other, which represents the love that Jesus has for us and will have for anyone who calls upon his name. God values unity. Unity is a higher priority than efficiency. Unity is a higher priority than our personal opinions, wants, and desires. And unity is a higher priority than our comfort. God desires that we be one under him.